delighted to have you with us tonight as we come back and look at some things from the Word of God. It's been a good day. It's good to remind ourselves that the gospel still works, as we saw two young souls be baptized in Christ this morning, and it's good to see that people are still interested and the gospel plan still works. Brother Jason's kind of optimistic when he says there'll still be light when we get done. Uh, it might be. We might preach to midnight, so we'll just see what happens. You know, I, you know, one of the things that really gets me from a preacher's standpoint, we don't say this, but I'll go ahead and say this. Right before you get up to preach, the song before you get up and they're going to preach is, It Won't Be Very Long. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, maybe. We just don't know. Psalms chapter 8, and in verse 4, a question is asked, What is man that thou take thought of him? Now, in that question there, the psalmist is talking about mankind. Why, why are we so special? What is it about us that makes God do what he does? God did not send Jesus down here for the animals. God did not send Jesus down here to save the whales or clean up the environment. It's mankind that God is interested. We are the ones made in the image of God. A few weeks ago, we preached a sermon, Little Girls to Godly Women. And at that time, I said we're going to kind of, in a few weeks, come back and talk about the opposite of that, and that's little boys to godly men. And so this evening, that's what we want to kind of look at, as we consider some things from the, from the Word of God about our homes and about raising boys to become leaders, leaders at home, leaders in the community, and leaders in God's kingdom. And what we see all about us today is that our culture has made things confusing. Hollywood and aggressive feminism and the media has kind of suppressed what a masculine person is supposed to be. Uh, the latest Supreme Court candidate, she's a woman. And you've probably heard all kinds of jokes about this. She was asked, can you define what a woman is? Being a woman... She said, I'm not a biologist. Well, I'm not a mechanic, but I know what a tractor looks like. You know, I, I'm not a marine zoologist, but I know what a whale looks like. And our political climate has gotten to such a point where we're afraid to say, that's male, that's female. And that culture is causing a lot of confusion. And so today, when we look at these muddy waters, we, we see that in politics and sports and business, I believe before too long, even in the church, we're seeing this idea of gender equality, gender confusion, and gender changing. Back in the 60s, the British group, the Kinks, had a song that said, boys will be girls and girls will be boys. It's a mixed up, muddled up world, and so it is. And so we look in the news, and you may have never watched the Oscars before, but the slap around the world. Is this how you're supposed to behave when you disagree with somebody? Here is a man, and he heard something he disagreed with, so he just took actions into his own hand. And that concept is causing a lot of confusion as we think about our culture today. And so this evening, what we want to look at is what is a man... And how do we get boys to become godly men via the Bible? We're not interested in what culture defines. We're not interested in what society says. We're not interested in political correctness. We're interested in what the God of heaven who made us 
decreed and said about these things. And so we want to begin in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 as we think about this concept of little boys to godly men. We understand that when God looks upon all of us, male, female, our souls are precious. Our hearts are very important to him. And that in the eyes of God, we're all joint heirs of the grace of God. The Bible teaches that in multiple places. But we also understand that God has designed an order. And it's by God's design and God's choice, there is this order. This order is not based upon intelligence, strength, anything other than God has chosen. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians and in chapter 11, the Bible says in verse 3, it says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and then he says that the man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. Now, does that mean one's better than the other? Absolutely not. There are roles to fill, there are roles to play, and this is by God's design that it's this way. Now, when we look at verses like this, and we walk away from this and say, well, you know, that's just cultural. Well, what else is cultural in our Bible? Is our worship cultural? Is baptism cultural? Is the Bible itself cultural? And so we need to see and appreciate the things that God says. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 22, and verse 30, uh, the prophet was asked this. He says, I searched for a man among them who uh, would build up in the wall. I need to turn around so I can see it a little better. Build up in the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. I searched for a man to stand in the gap, but I found no one. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame, you know, we got Cooperstown for baseball and Hollywood, they got the walk of fame with the stars on there. We go to Hebrews 11, it's like these are God's all-stars. Have you ever noticed who's missing in Hebrews 11? A lot of important people. The very first man God ever made, Adam, he's not in Hebrews 11. Do you realize that the very first high priest... Aaron, he's not in Hebrews 11. The first king of Israel, Saul, he's not in Hebrews chapter 11. The very first temple builder, Solomon, he's not in Hebrews chapter 11. And when we think about looking for somebody to stand in the gap, but I found no one. Statistics tell us that 30% of homes today are raised by a single parent. And so we need to see the, the difficulty of such things. So many places we go to, so many places Jason and I preach, we look out and we see a majority of the congregation is women. Where are the men? And so this lesson here is about all of us as we think about the things that God wants us to do. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, the Apostle Paul said this as he concerned the Corinthians there. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Act like men. In the book of 1 Kings, or excuse me, the book of 1 Samuel, rather, chapter 4, as it's referring to the Philistines fighting Israel, there it says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to them, to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Be men. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 2, when David was talking to Solomon, the future king, he said, as for me, I'm going the way of the earth, be strong, and be a man. 
Well, that's what we're talking about this evening. What is that? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to act like men? Now, if we take, if we take our ideas from society, we're going to get all kinds of things that's not true to the Scriptures. And so when we talk about this idea of little boys to godly men, what we're looking at is how to develop leaders, how to be a leader without being a bully, how to be a leader without being selfish, how to be a leader without being demanding, and how to be someone that pleases God and all that he is. And so let's begin, first of all, with what I call the six deal breakers in the home. This applies both to male and females. Deal breakers in the home. You know, sometimes things come up and that's just a deal breaker. You want to buy this house and the people say, you really want this? And they say, we're not going to do this. And you say, well, deal's over. You want to buy this car and you really want these other things on it? They're not going to do that with the dealership. And so you say, you know what? That kills the deal. It's a deal breaker. And I believe in the home there are deal breakers. Number one is when there's an absentee influence. Your children will be influenced either by you or by someone else. It may be their friends. It may be social media. It may be TV. It may be from the worst source. But your your children are going to know about the Bible either the right way or the wrong way. They're going to learn about love and marriage either the right way or the wrong way. They're going to learn about the concept of the church, either the biblical way or wrong way. And so when there's an absentee influence in a home, that's a deal breaker. That hurts the home. A second thing we would say is when there's a lack of priorities. When there's a lack of priorities, it leads to no vision, no direction, and no intention. The idea that we just do whatever we feel like doing from moment to moment. We don't have a set goal. We don't have a set roadmap we're following. And that lack of priorities hurts things. Number three is a deal breaker is cloudy integrity. When honesty is not the rule. When we're allowed to, to fudge things and shade things and tell lies and kind of cover things up. And when mom and dad are in that process as well, it leads to dishonest hearts and dishonest people. Number four is when there's a worldly attitude. We had a great lesson about that today. Minding the things of God or minding the things of the Lord. Where's our mind at? It's not just in the church building. It's when we're in a home as well. Number five is when we're not creating a positive atmosphere for growth. It's just the constant beat down, the constant negative, the constant you can't do anything right creates an atmosphere that's just not healthy in the home. And then number six is when there's an indifferent faith. When faith just doesn't matter. Now, these things will hurt your home. These things will hurt your sons. And your sons need to see how to treat a woman. Your sons need to know how to apologize. Your son needs to know how to ask for help. And our society and our culture has no help in those things. Our culture today is against those things. And so we need to see how important those things are. And so when we think about the idea of discipleship, discipleship by its core definition, means to imitate. It's like a stencil. You know, you get the stencil out and you draw the thing there in the little stencil and it comes out the same way. It's like being mentored. It's like an internship. Some of you have been entered in, in some of these places and you've modeled somebody, you've followed somebody at work or at school and you learned how to do what they're doing. That's the concept of discipleship. 
And so in John chapter 13, as Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, he would say in verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Imitate me is what Jesus was saying. Paul says simply that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the concept of discipleship. Now as we transcend this into the home, that's what we're talking about. To get our young girls, to get our young boys to be where God wants them to be, it's not based upon our Bible classes. That has a place. It's not our sermons. There's a place for that. But the core ingredient is seeing mom and dad the way that they ought to be. Over in the book of Psalms, chapter 111, the psalmist here is talking about God. He says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. What's interesting is when you flip the page to chapter 112, same number, verse 4, he talks about the righteous man. And there, the righteous man, he is gracious and compassionate and righteous. He's just like God. Do you see that? In chapter 111, this is how God is. In chapter 112, this is how I am. That concept of imitating. Then in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. There's that imitation, following what God has done. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And so when we think about this idea of discipleship, the idea that I am his and he is mine, this concept begins, first of all, by seeing this concept built in our homes. And so little boys to godly men, first of all, it comes about when family is more important than career. That's hard for some of us men. Some of us, we define ourselves by our jobs, what I have accomplished, what I have done in my life. And sometimes we believe it's a badge of honor to work ourselves to death. I love what the former head of Chrysler, Lee Iacola, once said. He, he said concerning some of his executives, he said, they come to me with pride saying, boy, I worked so hard last year, I did not even take a vacation. Iacola said, if you can take responsibility for an $80 million project, then you should be able to plan some time for fun and balance in your life. And we don't want to admit this, but the day you retire, the day you die, the hierarchy of your company is already finding your replacement. And that is true of me as a preacher. If I died tomorrow, the elders would be on the phone looking for another preacher. Because that's what it is. But when we put this to be the most important thing in my life is my job, then the impression you leave to your children is my job, my work is more important than you. That's not the way you're going to get them to be developed as God wants you to. Number two. Character is more important than attaining honor and success. Over in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, Ecclesiastes writer says this. Remember chapter 7, that wonderful chapter that has all these, one thing is better than another thing. And in these contrasts, they oftentimes seem to be opposite. For instance, in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. That seems opposite. 
If I was to tell you this evening, hey, after services, who wants to go to the funeral home or who wants to come to my house for a party? Well, forget that funeral home thing, you know. <laughs> who wants to go there? But he begins his chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. He's talking here <clears throat> about the good name. It takes a long time to develop a good name. And a good name can be destroyed immediately by poor choices. And a good name shows who you are. Reputation, or reputation is who people think you are. Character is who you really are. And so Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear in a stack of Bibles. You don't stand in your mama's grave and say, I promise this is true. You be a person of integrity, character is more important than attaining honor and success. Number three, the value of others is more important than the value of stuff. We like a lot of stuff, but what's really important is people. Over in the book of Philippians, if you will, Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say it this way. In Philippians chapter 2, he would say here, beginning first of all in verse 3, and then continue on just a little bit more, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Regard one another as more important. You are more important than I am. And I am more important than you are when you look at me. You see? That's the concept. And so when moms and dads start developing that in the home, you're developing the principle. Yes, things are nice, and we need things. We live in the material world. But that doesn't define who we are. That doesn't define success. That doesn't mean that you are right with God. People are more important. And so the development of genuine, honest friendship, understanding that disagreements this is hard for our culture today. We may disagree, but that does not mean we can no longer be friends. We no longer can have a communication. We no longer can be around each other. Our world today is if you disagree with me, I cut you off. I never want to hear from you again the rest of your life. That's not biblical as we think about that. And then the joy of a godly fellowship as we have right here. Those are things that are developed. Developed in the home and stretched out this way. Then number four, as we consider this, it's the idea of a life centered upon the Lord cannot be shaken. Jesus ended that Sermon on the Mount, not by saying stand and sing, but what he said is <clears throat> he told a story. <clears throat> he told a story about two men. One man built his house upon the rock, the other man built his house upon the sand. Storms came to both men, but the man who built his house upon the rock, his house stood. And that man represented the person who listened to Jesus and did what Jesus said. That is the key. Do you remember from your Bible classes a long, long time ago when we were studying about Israel? and We were studying about going into the promised land and moving toward the promised land. And they had all those tribes. And in the book of Numbers, this is found particularly. This is how they were designed. And what's in the middle is the tabernacle where God was. And all around, facing inward to that tabernacle, was all the tribes. That is a God 
centered concept. That's what we're illustrating. When the home has a God-centered concept, the question doesn't come up, well, should we go Wednesday night or not? Well, let's see if it's raining. If it's raining, we can't do anything, so we'll go to church. If it's not raining, well, we might just go do something. A God-centered life already has that answer. A God-centered life knows what God expects and what God wants him to do. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Proverbs, if you will. And I want you to notice this little expansion here in the book of Proverbs. It starts in chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs. But it flows through the next seven chapters. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. Here's a dad sitting down with his kids. And he's going to talk to them about the way of the Lord. Now, look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you'll treasure or receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. A father is talking to his son. Turn on to the third chapter. My son, do not forget my teaching. Lest your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Chapter 6, verse 1. My son, if you become certainty for your neighbor and have given a pledge for stranger. And then chapter 7. My son, keep my words. What do we have in these first seven chapters is we have a father instructing his kids. And that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4 says, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 talks about, or 6, 4 rather, talks about a father bringing up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teaching them. A God-centered home. And again, that's the concept we need to see. Now, with this, with this, I think every parent... I think this is real important. I think every parent and every grandparent needs to tell your kids, you're a little boy, and God made you that way, and that's just the way you are. You're a little girl, and God made you that way because he wanted you to be a little girl, and that's the way you are. You can't have a choice in this. You can't switch. That's not an option. You are a boy because God made you a boy. You are a girl because God made you a girl. I think we need to be saying that and saying that and saying that so they hear that and understand that. Because our culture says, well, maybe God made you, but God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. We make mistakes. And when God has made you male, you are male. You may not want to be a male, but you are male. You know, you may have blue eyes and wish you had green eyes. That's just the way God made you. When I was a little boy, I had flaming red hair. Oh, I had, hated red hair. But you know what? It's the way God made me. And so God makes you a certain way. So in this, a child learns respect from his parents. Respect toward others. Respect toward those in authority. Respect of property. One of the things I, I've chased every once in a while is a site 
that it's, it's about cemeteries in Indiana. I don't know why I do this, but I kind of look at these, they, these people go around and take pictures of these obscure cemeteries in Indiana, and they just kind of talk about them. But nearly every single photo, there's pictures of tombstones that's been knocked over. Some kids probably been in there and had a great time just knocking them over. Look how fun this is. You learn respect at home. You learn respect that this is not your property. You take care of it. You learn respect about how you want to be toward other people. You learn respect toward the parents, toward the teachers, toward the police. This is a concept we learn at home. But when mom and dad have no respect, you know the kids aren't either. Secondly, a child learned manners at home. I still love it when people go up and a little one will call me Mr. Roger. Mr. Roger, sir, they've learned manners. They learn when mommy's talking to somebody or daddy's talking to somebody, you just don't come in and interrupt. You know, I'm first. I'm most important. I don't care what you're talking about, but it's me and here's what I want. You learn manners. You learn to say please. You learn to say thank you. And that, that, that begins around the kitchen table. Give me some salt. There's a word. Please. Okay. Say that. And you teach that, and you teach that, and you teach that, and that becomes a part of life. A lot of us have grown up understanding those lessons. And when we would ask something, and we didn't put the please or the thank you on there, we knew we never got anything, because that was part of that. And then a child learns worship. Take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis 22. It's a great little lesson here, Genesis 22. This is the occasion when Abraham was offering Isaac. Genesis 22 and let's look at the first seven verses. Genesis 22 and the first seven verses. Genesis 22. And it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, verse 4, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? He knew, didn't he? He knew God doesn't want an apple off a tree. God doesn't want a rock you picked up in the dirt. God doesn't want a feast you caught. God wants a lamb. Dad, where's the lamb? He knew how to worship. How did he know that? I believe he saw his father worshiping and worshiping and worshiping. Every time we go to this altar, we take this lamb, and it's slaughtered, and there's blood everywhere, but that's what God wants. And what we need to instill in our children is how to worship God the way that God wants to be worshipped. We have a culture today where the big people all the way down to the little people say that worship is playtime. 
Let's bring in the elephants. Let's have popcorn. Let's have a great time. But none of it is biblical. Isaac knew. Would your children know how to worship God the way God wants to be worshipped? Imagine this evening. The elders say we're going to do something we've never done before. On the spur of the moment, we're turning our Sunday night services over to our young people. Go, do it, and they sit down. What would they do? Would one of the young men get up and say, well, we've got to have some hymns. Let's do some singing. Would one of the young men say, we've got to have a prayer. That's how we worship. Would one of them say, well, you know what? Let's open our Bibles. Let me read a few verses and give you some thoughts from these things. Or would they say, we've been waiting for this for a long, long time. Put all this stuff away. It is playtime. Isaac knew. Where is the lamb? And where does that come from? That comes from home. That comes from talking about this. This comes from reverence. This comes from respect. God has said things in his way. Why does God want a lamb? It's up to God to say that. Why does God want us to put it on the altar? It's up to God to say that. Why does God want us to kill it? Because it's up to God to say that. God has said we obey. That's some of the things that we need to see and appreciate. Now, this little chart here, I'm going to bring it up a little bit larger here in a minute. But at the very top, it says 75% of kids left church from ages 18 to 29. 75%. Percent. Just hit your brake on that for a minute. Imagine over here on the left-hand side, I just started listing all the names in this church that were between 18 and 29. And then we say, we're just going to put a line through 75% of them. 75% of them are not going to worship the Lord the biblical way anymore. A lot of that happens at college. But then under this, why... 25% stayed. You got 75% left, but you got a group that has stayed. Why have the group that stayed stayed? And, and down below here, here's why. He said, number one, they ate dinner five of seven nights a week as a family. Now think about that. Here's, the, here's mama making the meal. Get my plate full. Go off to my room, watch TV. Someone goes off to their room, watch TV. Someone goes to the basement, watch TV. We're not together as a family. Five out of seven nights, we're together. And guess what you're doing? You're not eating like a school cafeteria. Mom and dad are there, and you're talking. You're talking about life. You're talking about what's going on. The second one, he says, that they served their family in the ministry. And we may not use that word ministry, but what we're talking about here is you help your family. Maybe there's been somebody sick in the congregation, and you cook some food, and you take your little ones with you to do that. Maybe there's been a death, and you take the little ones to go with you to the funeral home. You are helping them do something for someone else. You are engaged in that. They see that. Number three, had one spiritual experience in the home during the week. Well, spiritual experience would be something like praying. It would be like talking about the Bible. It'd be like, let's read our daily Bible lesson together. And they're doing that in the home. Number four, they entrusted with responsibility and ministry at an early age. In other words, they were doing things. They're engaged in serving as Jesus wants us to serve. Number five, they had at least one faith-focused adult in their lives other than their parents. Not just mom and dad. Grandma and grandpa. 
aunts and uncles, others that are leading the way to help them be this way. So now as we flip the concept and talk about leadership, biblical leadership is nothing more than discipling. It's the idea of molding, it's the idea of imitating. Moses and Joshua, Jesus and the apostles, Paul and Timothy. And so some of the characteristics we pull out from the Bible is that leaders take the blame, but they pass the credit on to others. And by this, they're being responsible. They're being responsible. It's not about them. It's about everyone else. Secondly, leaders stay with it to the end. You know, the old expression, the captain goes down with the ship. Why does the captain go down with the ship? Because he's the leader, and he's being dependable, and that's what leaders do. And so then, number three, leaders are unselfish, untiring, and full of compassion. They are committed, and that's how they do these things. So when we think about little boys to godly men, we're just not talking about how do we get them to be big, because nature itself will do that. You just give them the right diets and let them go out and play a little bit, they're going to grow up to be men. We've got a lot of people who are big in our times today, but they're small on the inside. How do we get them to be spiritual leaders? How do we get them to be someone that's going to be what God wants them to be in their home as they have a home someday, in the community, in this church? Well, three, three or four things real quickly. Number one, what they need to do is they need to be able to make a decisive decision and stick with it. Now, your kids get big eyes when they're small. I want to sign up for choir. I want to sign up for the band. I want to sign up for soccer. I want to sign up for Little League. I want to sign up for this and this and this and this. Apparently, you got to tone it down. But you tell them when you sign up, you're staying with it till the season's over. First day of practice, oh, I hate this. Hate the people on my team. Hate my coach. I want to quit. No, leaders don't quit. You made a promise. You're going to stick with it. At the end of the semester, at the end of the season, you can quit. But you stay with it. That's part of that concept there. And to see what God wants us to do. To be able to reason, to think, and to look through things objectively. Always obeying God, even when it's difficult and it's hard. Number two, as you think about being a leader, it's the idea of being able to take criticism and continue on. To be strong. And to understand that there's a job you have to do. And again, this is something that Jason and I have noted lately. There's just been a a whole bunch of young preachers, probably about his age, that just quit. It's going to be a big deficit in the church, I believe, in a few years, because so many preachers are quitting. And I think this is one of the reasons. Brethren come up and they say things, and maybe they didn't come out right. Maybe they meant some harshness by it. And not having a thick skin, and not being able to take these things, it's easier to just quit. Be able to take criticism. And continue on. This is the right thing to do. This is what God wants me to do. Number three, be able to listen to others. Others who are your contemporaries, others who are younger than you, others who are older than you. You always need to be able to listen. It doesn't mean everything they say is right. It doesn't mean everything they say you're going to do, but you're going to listen. You're going to listen. The book of Proverbs talks about the gray head. It's an honor for an older person. And there's some things about that. You're going to listen to those who differ with you. Why is it that we disagree about this? Why is it you see this and and not this? And I'm going to listen to your, give me your arguments. I'm going to listen to that. Now, I may not agree with that, but I'm going to listen. 
And then be able to know where you're headed. You know, the great Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He knew where the green pastures were. He knew where the quiet waters were. Do not be afraid to travel alone because sometimes you have to. And so those are some thoughts we need to consider as we think about this little boys to godly men. You know, one of Kevin Clark's lessons when he was with us a few weeks ago, he started the lesson referring to Alice in Wonderland. And Alice would say to the Chelsar cat, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat responds, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And Alice says, I really don't care much. And then the cat says, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And that makes us think about our homes. You can have your kids grow up, but what kind of kids are they going to be when they're adults? And we see within this congregation generations, and that reminds us that these things are hard to do, but we can do them. The way of the cross we sing leads home. Lead this church, lead your family, lead yourself to heaven. That's the concept we're trying to get across. And so... Lots of things I've talked about tonight. But if you've got some questions, we want to help you. We want you to see how important it is. What a responsibility. What a privilege. What an honor. Number one, you have as a parent to raise your children. But number two, what a blessing they have to have you. Somebody who knows. Somebody who cares. Somebody who's got their eyes set on heaven to guide them. And so together, this can make a difference. And I've been some places. I was telling somebody a while back, I, I held a meeting not too long ago at this place. And I think the youngest person in that building was about 85 other than me. And they said, Brother Shellis, you want to come back in five years for a meeting? And I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know. Y'all going to be here five years? I don't know. But we look about us. This is why we have Bible classes. This is why we engage with our building block pro process. That moms and dads, when they get home, more than just saying, well, did you have a Bible class? Yes. Did you learn anything? Yes. Good. Let's eat. Let's eat. You can discuss the same thing. And you can talk about these things. And you can expand upon them. And you can add to them. And that's the idea we want to do. You see, this church is blessed with layers of leaders. But it hasn't always been that way. And it's not a given, it's always going to be that way. And what makes the difference is when we put in the energy to train little boys how to be leaders and godly men. And so that's our thoughts for this evening. If you're not a Christian, we saw this morning the wonderful, wonderful way it begins. It begins through faith. It begins through repentance. It begins through confession. It begins through immersion or baptism. And then a walk begins. And God places within us these responsibilities. He doesn't say the government's job is to do this. The school's job is to do this. A lot of folks think that's the answer. School's job is to teach my kids what they should do. No, it's the home's job. It's not even the church's job. It is the home's job. But what a blessing that is. You have all those curious little minds, all those questions, thousands of questions every day. And you just keep answering them and being patient and leading and guiding and knowing that you got clay and you're just molding this person to the person of God. That's what we're after. We can help you in any way once you come as we stand, as we sing. <laughs>